How do you use rental real estate to create wealth, even in an expensive and high-demand area like Southern California? Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, Terry Moore's CCIM talks with Big Al Clopine about his new book, Building Legacy Wealth. Top San Diego apartment broker shows how to build wealth through low-risk investment property and live a life worth imitating. Plus, Joe and Big Al answer your money questions. Can excess scholarship money be contributed to a Roth IRA? Will stock and bond income affect your social security benefits? The fellas also do a couple of complete retirement assessments right on the fly to help you generate and maximize retirement income while minimizing taxes. I'm producer Andy Last with Joe Anderson CFP, our guest Terry Moore, and Big Al Clopine CPA. Welcome, Terry. How you doing? Alan, it's great to be with you. Well, we're, you know, we want to do this for you. I'll tell you why. Because, first of all, you and I have done business together. So I met Starting you. Starting like 20 years ago. Yes. Yeah. yeah, something like that. So I, I think I met when, you. At, when we were young, before any, either one of us had any silver hair. Right. We were dumb then, but hopefully we're wiser now. Yeah, we were kind of starry-eyed. And I think you and I made some good decisions and, and made some not so good. But you and I met at a seminar. That's how you get wisdom. Yeah, you were teaching on uh, small apartment investments in San Diego. And I bought one uh, through you and sold one through you. And it was a great experience. And so I really want to sort of get into that. But what really kind of prompted me to have you on the air is you just wrote this book called Building Legacy Wealth. And I I would love to find out, first of all, what made you write the book? Well, Al, I was fortunate in that I get to give talks from time to time. There's some people around here think I know what I'm doing after 25 years. And over about a three or four month period, I got three or four invitations. And I said, you know, I think I actually have something worthwhile to say. My best male friend had invited me to write a book and we had nothing in common to write about. But I came home one night and said, honey, I think I'm ready to write the book. And she said, what, you're gonna write a get rich book on real estate? No, 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 that's too small a topic. Money is a great slave and it's a terrible master. I don't want to write a get-rich book. I want to write a book about legacy. And legacy is more important than wealth because legacy, Al, is what you leave behind. It's not just the stuff. It's the investment in people. And having written the book, I now understand the cost of writing a book. A lot of people read the book because they want to know how to build wealth. Making your money multiply is a good thing. But money alone is too small a goal. Legacy is a bigger goal. People will read the book to learn about wealth, and that's the meat. But the seasoning, the reason that I wrote the book, is legacy. I've read a lot of real estate books. I know you have as well. In some cases, some of the books kind of pay lip service, maybe at the end, that maybe you should have a greater purpose, giving some back to society. But in your book, you actually kind of started with the building legacy. So tell us about that. Sure. I built the book around somebody who lived legacy wealth. And I met this lady and we helped her ultimately buy and sell about 15 apartment buildings. She not just made money, but she made a difference, not just for herself and her family, but she helped her tenants. Jeannie modeled how to have a life worth imitating. And I've served a couple hundred people now, and I wanted to encourage people not just to make money with real estate. Drunken pools have made money in Southern California. 
but how to pass their values on to the kids, how to be a long-lasting beneficial impact to those around them. Yeah, I think it's one thing to try to build wealth for your family and make money, and that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I think if you have a greater purpose in why you're doing this, I think you're much more likely to be successful. Because, Terry, as you know, Real estate is not quite like the infomercials make it sound to be. It's a little bit more difficult, and things happen, and sometimes they're not that great. I'm not sure how far you've gotten into book, but one of the most important pages is one that says, you should not be a landlord if. Yeah. And and it's if you're a bigot and if you've got some other issues. I describe landlording as face-to-face capitalism. When the lady in number three loses her job, when the couple in number four get divorced, the landlord knows about it. And some people hate the fact that you're dealing with real people, but other people relish it and they like to be able to make a difference in people's lives. And it's relatively easy to help folks who are not making $100,000. What to many investors would be a small amount of money can make a big difference in somebody's lifestyle. And if your wife spends $10,000 for appliances, the neighbors wouldn't think that's unusual. If somebody spends $10,000 to make apartment better, the family that lives there will benefit from that for ten dollars or $15,000, and that upgrade will make money for the landlady as well. And face-to-face capitalism involves making choices that make a difference one resident family at a time, and it's a long-lasting impact. Yeah, well said. You've picked, uh, obviously, real estate as the vehicle for building legacy wealth. And, and of course, there's different choices. There's residential properties, industrial office, retail. And then, of course, and you picked residential, then you further kind of focus it into small apartments. So talk to us about why you think small apartments are maybe the best way to go between all of those choices. One of my mentors said there's a million ways to make a million bucks. And I'm not going to say this is the best. I'm going to say this is a low-risk escalator to wealth. And there's a couple of things that make Southern California residential real estate very safe and highly likely to give appreciation. In 40 states, they build enough housing for their families, for the young households who don't have college degrees. In Houston, for example, Houston has one-fourth the population of the state of California. But Houston has built more apartments and condos than the entire state of California in the last decade. So rents are cheap in Houston. Apartments are cheap in Houston. And the things that I suggest here won't work all that well in Houston. But Southern California, we have a screaming need and not much new production. Government policies in California have meant we've built half as much housing, particularly rental housing, for the people in the lower half of the income scale. And that's horrible if you write rent checks. It's great if you receive rent checks. For each of our listeners, no matter where they are, the scariest zip code within 25 miles probably has 96% occupancy. What I'm saying is there's very little vacancy risk. And the nice thing about apartments is you can buy used apartments, you clean them up, you paint them up, you can fix them up, it's pretty easy to spend $10,000 on an apartment, raise the rent to 100 bucks, $1,200 a year. That's a 12% return right there. And the people who are listening, if they spend $10,000 to improve apartments, they'll increase the value of the apartments 15 or maybe $20,000 a year. So you, you, a lot of people 
who've invested in real estate, maybe they had a house or a home or a condo or something like that. If they sell it and pay the tax, they give a third of their profit away. If they trade up and get bigger units, in effect, the tax deferred exchange, as you well know, gives them an advantage where they get all their capital working for them. They don't give a third of their profit away and they can buy a bigger building. And under the current tax laws, you can trade up, trade up, trade up, trade up. And when you eventually pass, you disinherit the IRS, you disinherit the California Franchise Tax Board, unless your estate is more than $23 million. This is a a low-risk escalator to wealth, and it's because of the special things in California that take the risk away. Yeah, and and I think we for our listeners that are throughout the country, we want, we kind of want to make it clear that your strategies, although they could potentially work anywhere, uh, they're going to work best in areas where there's not enough housing for the demand. And certainly Southern California is part of that. And I would say, Terry, a lot of books that I've read uh, are just the opposite. They're books about going to areas where it's really good cash flow. And, and not a lot of books have been written in areas like San Diego, like Los Angeles, like Orange County, like like San Francisco, where there's a huge need, but there's not enough housing to go around. Yeah, there's another right way to do it, and that is you buy in the 40 states that population is not at best growing as fast as the national average or worse, falling behind the national average. And most people live in states that are holding their own or not quite holding their own. A lot of people say, get great cash flow and That's the way most people make their wealth. In the coastal cities, in the cities where the environmentalists and the NIMBYs have a bigger impact, and they could be Boulder, Colorado, where there's artificial restrictions on new construction of rentals. The bad news about supply-constrained states is lots of people want to be there. But essentially, if you get in on this, you're probably going to have faster-than-average appreciation. One of my other smart clients bought in Tucson. I don't want to tell you the pain he went through, but 10 years later, he sold it at a loss. The market went kaflui. There was overbuilding. His vacancy tripled to quadrupled, and this $300 an hour guy gave up 30 weekends with his family trying to fix the hole in the leaky bucket. At the same time, he had a smaller, less glamorous building in an ordinary zip code in San Diego, and that one tripled his equity, and his younger son spent five hours a month managing that, while dad was spending three weekends a month for a year trying to solve a problem in Tucson. After 10 years, he gave up and lost money. Tucson was the place where you had high cash flow in good years, and in bad years, you had negative cash flow. It's a risk-reward thing. This is low risk and low cash flow, but can be greater appreciation in the long run. Check the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com for a transcript of this interview and to download Big Al's 10 Tips for Real Estate Investors white paper for free. Learn what you need to consider before you invest in real estate. Understand the finances of real estate investing, what you need to know about using leverage, and much more. Download 10 Tips for Real Estate Investors from the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Now, more with Terry Moore, CCIM. So let's say we have listeners in Southern California or uh, San Francisco, for example. How would they 
go about getting started? What are some of the things that they should be looking at in terms of apartment, small apartment investing? You could buy a condo for $50,000, but if you're going to buy a fourplex in Southern California, you probably need $200,000 down, maybe more. You need reasonable credit. There's a separate 15-minute segment we could do about how loans are figured. But the short story is the way that you and I succeeded, Alan, was we bought a building with fixable problems. And the fixable problems have to add value. So if you've got a, a bad sewer system and you fix the sewer system, you can't raise the rents. If it's poorly managed and you get it managed well, you get more. If it's got ugly as homemade sin paint and you painted attractive colors, you'll get more. So you need to pick a situation with a fixable problem where you fix it and you get higher rent. And income property, you get paid as a multiple of your income. So it's not, I spent $10,000 and it's going to take me eight years to get it back. That's true and that's irrelevant. You spent $10,000, you get $1,200 of income, and you sell it for 15 times the annual income. Yeah, I think that I think that's a good point, Terry, because the values on these properties are based upon cash flow and not what the person sold next door, although that's maybe part of it, but the value of these apartments are based upon cash flow. And here's something, Alan, that I frankly didn't completely understand when you and I first started doing business. A sage investor boiled it down. He said, invest where you wouldn't live and live where you wouldn't invest. Huh? I thought the right thing for real estate was location, location, location. If your kids are going to go to school there, yes, you want your kids to go to the best possible schools. But you know what? As a landlord, you don't make more money because your tenants' kids go to great schools. You pay more for a dollar that comes from a place with great schools, but you don't make more. In investment real estate, this sounds crazy, but it's true. In investment real estate, it's not location, location, location. It's leverage, leverage, leverage. In the beach, you may have to put two-thirds down, you may borrow one-third. And the inland, you put one-third down, you borrow two-thirds. When you get through doing the math, you make twice as much money being inland because the leverage multiplies the equity. And related to that, if you invest in a working class neighborhood, that doesn't make you a slumlord. If you don't fix things that are broken, you're a slumlord. The tenant's income doesn't make you a slumlord. Your behavior makes you a slumlord. And you could be a great landlord, and people really appreciate it when they're in the lower half of the income scale and you treat them with courtesy and respect. That's part of the legacy thing again. It's not just getting wealthy. It's leading a life worth imitating, and they're all tied in together. Yeah, I think that's well said, Terry. What would be an expectation for a down payment? Is it the 33% or one-third, as you mentioned, in neighborhoods that are not not quite as good, and then nicer neighborhoods that might be more like 60 or even 67%? Is that what you're seeing right now? Yes. Essentially, the way the banks make the loan is they look at income, and they are more cautious than the seller the brokers, and since they're loaning other people's money, we want them to be cautious, but they will put in higher repair and maintenance expenses than most owners think is necessary. If it's a brand new building, they will say, well, you should set aside $250 per unit per year because eventually you'll need a roof. Eventually you'll need windows. Eventually you'll need a parking lot. They will put in a bunch of cushion, and then after they have made it as cautious as they know how, then they will say, I'm going to speak like a banker. Mr. Clopine, this building will generate $120,000 worth of cash flow, so we'll only make you a loan that requires $100,000 of debt repayment. So they want $120 of cash flow for every $100 of mortgage repayment. 
they call that a 1.2 debt coverage ratio. And the way that works out is in ordinary neighborhoods, somebody will have to put a third down. In fancy, glamorous, bragging rights neighborhoods, they have to put more down. Why is that? The fancy area should be easier. Well, the fancy areas might sell for $400,000 a unit, and you might be paying 18 times the annual rents, and the humbler neighborhoods might sell for $200,000 a unit, and they might sell for 12 or 14 times the annual rent. By the time you do the math, the bank makes a much bigger loan in the fancier areas, but the bank wants $120 worth of cash flow no matter where you are. And if you pay a premium for a fancier area, that makes you make a bigger down payment. Some people really, really think they want the fancier areas, but they won't pay what it costs. And what it costs is a bigger down payment, less leverage. What do you define as a small apartment? How many units? Most of our clients are buying or selling four units or bigger. And that could be a, an $800 million purchase in San Diego. I was looking something in a, an expensive suburb of Tulsa that was $70,000 a unit. In many places, a 100-unit building is a small building. But in Southern California, because of our zoning and other issues, fourplexes and above are small buildings. And in terms of valuation, you mentioned uh, multipliers based upon rent, gross rent multiplier. So is that what you're seeing right now in, in certain neighborhoods, 12 to 14 times gross rents, and other nicer neighborhoods, 18 times? Is that what the current market is in San Diego? Yeah, it's going to vary. You've got listeners in different states, and what's true in Southern California is going to seem crazy to people in the central time zone or in the south. Yeah, because, Terry, most it, of the books that I've read that are based upon cash flow areas tell you eight times gross rent multipliers. So 12 to 14 to 18 sounds pretty pricey. Yeah, my grandpa told me that, too. I, I read that book. I dusted it off in the library. That was a wonderful time, and in our lifetime, it actually existed before you and I shook hands. But in Southern California, when the safer places, it's higher prices. You may be able to buy in Tulsa, in Birmingham, in Des Moines, in Boise. You might get that. I don't think so, but it might be possible. So part of it is you've got to figure out your risk reward. If you want cash flow, forget any state that touches the salt water. Yeah, I think and when you take those true. states off, that's when you get the potentially high cash flow and the risk that Dan developer can buy a field from Farmer Jones and 120 days later he can have flooded the market and you're trapped and there's nothing you can do about it because if developer Dan puts up a couple hundred units every landlord in that metro suffers for a year or two until the overbuilding gets absorbed if you're in a place that restricts development whether it's by topography or not in my backyard NIMBYs or politics or some other way, you're going to be safe, and Dan Developer essentially can't overbuild. The government will put enough restrictions in to stop it. In San Diego County, to build new apartments, it's thirty to $80,000 per unit in fees. In this $100,000 a year neighborhood in outside Tulsa, you could buy the building for $70,000 a unit. And about a third of the zip codes in Southern California, the fees to the government are $70,000. No sticks, no bricks, no stucco, no plumber, no roofer, $70,000 in fees. Welcome to Southern California. Here's your newcomer tax. That's part of the reason we don't build as much here as in most other places. 
Fantastic uh, information. Uh, Terry, you were the author of Building Legacy Wealth. It's a fantastic book. And um, where can people get the book? On Amazon. I have a website, uh, San Diego apartmentbroker.com, but Amazon is cleaner, easier. Terry, thanks again so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you, Alan. I wish you the best. I hope 2019 is your best year so far. Well, thanks, and back at you. The first five people to email info at purefinancial.com right now will get a free copy of Terry Moore's book, Building Legacy Wealth. Top San Diego apartment broker shows how to build wealth through low-risk investment property and live a life worth imitating. Now remember, this book is the most useful if you're in an area where there isn't enough housing to keep up with demand. Be one of the first five people to email info at purefinancial.com. Send us your name, a mailing address, and put Building Legacy Wealth book in the subject line. And get a free copy of Building Legacy Wealth by Terry Moore, courtesy of Your Money, Your Wealth. Skip back 30 seconds if you need to hear all that again. And check the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com for a transcript of this interview and links to Terry Moore's website and his book, Building Legacy Wealth. Now it's time for your money questions. If you've got one, scroll down yourmoneyyourwealth.com and click Ask Joe and Al on air to send the fellows an email or a voice message right through the website, just like Thomas did. Hi, Joe and Big Al. This is Thomas from the middle of Missouri. I have a question regarding my 16-year-old stepson's 1098T for his scholarships. It said on there that his total scholarships and grants were 10723 and his tuition and fees were 7281 meaning he had more scholarships than tuition, $3,442 to be exact. Because of that, can he contribute that $3,442 to a Roth IRA? We were looking up the rules and we thought that that counted as earned income. And since it counts as earned income, can it then be put in the Roth? He also had $62.57 of unearned income on his uh, savings account. So we did not file a tax return for him because it was under $12,000. Were we correct about that? Thanks. All right, Thomas. Did, did you see, he had a little baby? Was yeah. That a baby I don't think that, that was the 16-year-old. I don't yeah. know. Thomas. He's yeah. got this... He's, <laughs> He's got the kid right there in his hands. Right. What did you file again? Um, uh, l- let me start, and you get in the, okay. the weeds. Yeah, all right. You but, start. Um, here's the rule when it comes to contributions to retirement accounts. If it is earned income, then yes, you can use it. But Alan's probably going to say he doesn't believe that it is earned income. Uh, that's because it's not. It is not earned income. There could be an exception, although I doubt it with a 16-year-old. But if you if you are in college and a and it's like a work study program, and that and you're getting that basically along with the scholarship, then some of that could be considered earned income. That is one situation where that's true, but that's probably not the situation here. the The rule is this: if your tuition is greater, I mean, if your scholarship is greater than your tuition and fees, then it, it is taxable income. It's not earned income. It's, it's taxable. It's income. taxable income. And to to further define that. Um, that's uh, when scholarships exceed tuition and fees, not including room and board, but it does include book supplies and equipment required for courses at uh, instruction. So, um, or at your institution, I should say. So, at any rate, it is income, but it's not earned income. Uh, you also had s- Thomas, man, he's on it. $62.57 of under income in a savings account. <clears throat> 
You think he's an engineer? <laughs> it could be. <laughs> well, uh, you know, TurboTax, for whatever reason, it, it rounds to the nearest dollar, except for interest and dividends. It does the pennies. I've never understood why that's true. So explain this. So he's like, he didn't file a tax return for him because it was under $12,000. Um, why is that $12,000 an important figure? Well, that's the amount of the standard deduction for a single taxpayer. But if your son is a dependent, then it's different rules. Uh, and in fact, the the standard deduction, I don't have it in front of me right now, but it's but it's it's your earned income up to that point. But if but if it's if it's unearned income, which the three thousand four forty two and the sixty two dollars and fifty seven cents, <laughs> let's get that in. That would be unearned income, and then there's a I forget what there's a limit there, but that would probably be over the limit, so a return would need to be filed for the uh, for the child. For the child, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. That's, Interesting. That's my final answer. All right, Thomas. Uh, hopefully that helps. Terry from Wisconsin. Terry writes in. I'm thinking about starting to collect Social Security this year. I have a large amount of income from stocks and bonds, over forty thousand dollars annually. Will that income affect the total Social Security payments? <clears throat> All right. Um, you know what, Andy? Can we send Terry um, the our Social Security guide? The handbook? Yeah. The handbook. Easy. Um, because with Terry, um, we need more information. But if you, you could do the math with the Social Security guide that we're going to send you, um, There's two different questions kind of wrapped up into this one, and people get a little bit confused. So one is that if you claim your Social Security benefits early and you have earned income, then there's a threshold of earned income that you can make before they reduce your overall benefit. And that number is about... $18,000, $17,500. $18,000, Yeah, 17 and change. And and so full retirement age right now is age 66. It will be phasing up to 67. So in other words, if you claim those benefits before those ages, whichever one applies to you based upon your birth date, then yeah, you've got to look at your earned income and you may, you may lose some of your payments. Although I know what you're going to say, you don't really lose them. They get recalculated back into the pot for when you actually do take the benefits. Second thing is that Will that income affect the total Social Security payments in regards to maybe taxes? Um, well, $40,000 excuse me, of income from stocks and bonds is not calculated as earned income. So, Terry, if you do claim your benefits early and you have $40,000 of unearned income, it's not going to actually reduce the overall benefit, so you can go ahead and claim and not necessarily worry about it. <clears throat> if you understand that you will receive a reduction in benefit anyway by taking it early. But we're all under several assumptions here because I don't know how old Terry is. I don't know when Terry's going to, you know, he wants to collect or she wants to collect this year, but we don't know her age or what other income sources or whatever. Um, So the handbook will help Terry out. Um, It's like Pat. I don't know if Terry's a boy or a girl. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, hard to say. So, um, Remember Pat? Yes. Saturday Night Live. Okay. Um, Okay. So it could be taxed. So $40,000, um, the likelihood of it being taxed is um, very high. And it depends whether you're married or single, because there's different numbers there. So we will send Terry uh, the Social Security handbook, and then we can also... Um, is there a, Didn't we do a TV show or something like that? Maybe we sent her a video or something. Social yeah. Security Secrets. Yes, we the did. Secrets that, of Social this Security. Last season 5, I think. Yep. <laughs> season 5. 
We've done it five years now. Uh, and we've done radio. I think when they first invented radio, we were pretty much on. <laughs> you and Marconi. Yeah. Got some longer ones here. Yeah, we got some people that want us to construct a whole financial plan. Financial plan, plan on the air. Yeah. Can we do it? <sighs> yeah. I'm, uh, I haven't read any of this. But we'll skim through it. Let's go. Okay. All right. What, what do we got? We got Mike from Ohio. <clears throat> Mike says, writes in, I would first like to say how much I enjoy your YouTube episodes, and I would like also, and I would also like to take advantage of uh, your request to send us your retirement questions. Okay, so here you go, Mike. You're sending us a retirement question. Uh, Mikey is 57, wife 56. They live in uh, Ohio, where the cost of living is on the low side. I retired from my account manager position in August 2017 after 35 years. Due to health and stress reasons, I now drive for a company full-time while my wife is still employed as a bank uh, bank branch manager. I've never really had a dedicated financial advisor, but I do my homework to the best of my ability. Here are my accounts. All right, so he retired a little early. The wife's still working full-time, and now he's uh, driving. I yeah, wonder so. if he's uh, doing uh, Mr. Lyft or Mr. Uber. Could be, or could be UPS, Amazon delivery, maybe. Okay. Long-haul trucking. Long, or yeah. <laughs> okay, that's true. <laughs> I don't know. Um, okay, so it, so he retired. He's still working, so he's, he's semi-retired. He just he ch- he changed out of a stressful job into something that is not as stressful. All right, so he bought a fixed annuity, uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars there. He's thinking about activating that at sixty-two. That's going to provide him uh, about fourteen hundred dollars a month. He's uh, let's see. He's got uh, rolled my four hundred one k into this in twenty seventeen, uh, seventy thousand dollars. Two-year rollover annuity, Lincoln Financial, one-year preferred trigger at 17.5 and two-year caps at 22.15 purchases 10 years ago. Okay. It's all you. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Let's go 30, 40, 50. He's got $60,000 in a few different accounts at Ed Jones, Roth IRA. Uh, we both have a frozen pension, which will generate $1,500 a month at age 60. My goal would be to at least uh, $5,000 a month at 66 and 65 years of age. Um, the questions that I have. What are my real after-tax penalty numbers? What do I do with 125000 to generate income? Thanks in advance. All right, Al, do you got your calculator? Do you got a pen, p- piece uh, of paper? We got, I, we got to take some notes here. Because I don't I'll... have the calculator, but I got the pen. Okay, the so he's got $200,000 in a fixed annuity. So, so Yeah, so that one he's thinking of turning the income on. So that's an income stream, and, and you rounded to four, well, 1400 1400 a month. All right, 1400 Okay. All right. Cool. So he rolled uh, my 401k into this in 2016. So he had a 401k of $200,000, bought this fixed income and annuity at Georgia Pacific, He's 57, and at 62, it's going to give him 1400 bucks a month. Right. All right. Um, then okay. he's got $70,000. It's a two-year rollover annuity. Not sure what a two-year-old rollover annuity is, but he's got $70,000 in another one. Uh, one-year preferred trigger at 17 and a half and two-year caps 22.15 purchases 10 years ago. Okay. Whew. No idea what he's talking about there. Okay. Well, we know the cat. We're assuming the cash surrender value is seventy thousand. All right, and then he's got thirty six thousand at Ed Jones. Conservative, conservative bucket. 
He's got 18, let's call it 19,000 in Huntington Bank. It's a 401k with a 6% match. That's his wife's 401k. Um, he's got 10 grand in a Roth. Okay. $370 in a principal 401k with 3% employer match. Okay. So I think that's where he gets the 125. So he's he wants to know how to how to clear the what the five hundred thousand dollars is gonna what what the after tax number penalty and what to do with the hundred twenty five thousand dollars to generate income. Okay, so they both have frozen pensions of fourteen hundred dollars. So that's gonna give them three thousand dollars a month. Yeah, and I don't know whether that's fourteen hundred dollars between the two of them or whether that's each. Sure. Not really sure. So let's just call it fourteen hundred frozen pension. She worked for the bank. He worked for something else. He got out. Let's just call it total. So that's going to give them three thousand. So we need to create two thousand dollars a month, approximately twenty four thousand yeah. dollars a year. Yeah, that's All right. right. <clears throat> to get them to his goal, mm-hmm. my goal is to be at least five thousand dollars clear a month at age sixty six and sixty five. All right. Well, let's talk about Social Security there. Yeah, it's not here. It's not here. So I guarantee. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Social Security probably twelve hundred bucks a piece. At least, That's yeah. another $24,000, yeah. Al. Then, then you're good. Then you're good. Then you take that $125,000, uh, and then you d- use a globally diversified portfolio. Hopefully, you get 5 or 6%, and then you'd pull out another, I don't know, you could probably pull out another $4,000 of income from that. Right. Yeah, so it sounds like he probably wants to retire before full retirement age. So then there would be a stub period without Social Security, potentially. So then you'd have to look at the 125000 Could you Could you work that out so you wouldn't completely run through it while you're waiting for Social Security? Or you'd take Social Security early. You could look at that. That could happen as early as age 62. Yeah, but <clears throat> let's say if he does... He's got this 120 because everything he's doing, he's looking for income. Right. He's turning, he's buying these annuities, and it's like, okay, I'm turning this annuity on, I'm turning this annuity on, I'm turning this annuity on, and so on. Yep. So <clears throat> I think he'd be happy with just a, a fairly large fixed income stream for the rest of his life. Yeah. Because that's what his plan is already doing. I would agree with that. So if, let's say, he burns through the 125, or maybe he burns through $100,000 over a four or five-year period, mm-hmm. and keeps $25,000 sitting in cash, maybe he pushes out his Social Security, so that's going to be a lot larger benefit. He turns on a couple of these annuities. Now he has a, and then plus his pension plan, I don't know, probably give him six $7,000 a month. Yeah, and that would get them there. Uh, the the pension and the annuity probably would not have a cost of living, so so that's an issue. Yep. Also, if you do that plan, you don't really have any liquidity left over. So if you have emergencies, you're kind of out of luck. You've got income, yes, but you may not have much to, to deal with whatever life throws at you. So I think you have to be aware of that, too. I think probably, if it were me, I would probably... I, I basically like that idea, but I would stop at the point where I felt like I, I like if I wanted a certain emergency fund, let's just say it's thirty thousand, fifty thousand, whether whatever the number is, I would I would want to make sure I had at least that. And then maybe if I then I was out of resources, I might start social security at that point. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't like the plan at all. Um, but if that's what he's already thinking and that's what he's doing, that's how to enhance it. I would kind of start over. And saying, all right, well, here, what do I have in total assets and how much money can I save now until age 65? He's still working, wife's still working. Um, you know, they can continue to plow money in. 
have a, a, a low-cost, globally diversified portfolio, let's say, over the next, what is he, 55? 57. Um, 57. So he's got 10 years. Um, the total liquid assets they have is about three hundred fifty grand, roughly, give yeah, or take. Counting the, the annuity. <clears throat> so uh-huh. let's say in 10 years, that three fifty doubles, plus if he can save. So now he's got eight hundred grand. Fair, are you with me? Yeah. If yeah, he, you know, if he saves a couple of a bucks, so sure. you know, so now he's close to a million dollars at age sixty-seven. So now with that liquidity that he's built up over time, so he can maybe take a little bit more, push out Social Security to age seventy. Okay, and so now he's living off of seven hundred. That's twenty-eight, thirty. I don't know. You probably have the same income stream as what he's currently doing here, but he's got a heck of a lot more liquidity. Yeah, and more, <clears throat> many more options. Many more options, mm-hmm. right? Um, at that point, if you want to take some of that and annuitize it, but he's already bought these, uh, you know, these insurance products, right? Um, you know, at fairly all-time low interest rates. Uh, I get that. You know, I, I was working a, a stressful job, getting the hell out of here, and I'm really enjoying myself driving around. Um, but if you're still making income, your wife is still working. Uh, might as well take a look and say, what am, what are you truly spending? You want to spend sixty thousand dollars a year? What's the most effective way to do that? What's the safest way to do it? And then what's going to give you the most options? So, Mike from Ohio, appreciate you calling in or writing in or whatever you did for us to talk to you. Um, hopefully that helps. Get some strategies for generating income in your retirement. Check the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to download your free guide to retirement income strategies. And since our ulterior motive is for YMYW to be your home for all things related to your financial life and retirement, you can also check out the Your Money, Your Wealth TV episode on generating a steady stream of retirement income right there in the podcast show notes as well. Now let's listen in as Joe and Big Al do another complete retirement assessment for a listener right off the tops of their heads. Pat from San Diego writes in, Hi, Joe and Big Al. My husband and I attended one of Joe's free three-hour retirement courses at SDSU. We laughed. We cried. We thoroughly enjoyed learning about the trials and tribulations of retirement. Joe is very entertaining. Thank you, Pat. But most of all, you opened our eyes to Roth IRA conversions. Since the class, I have been listening to the Pass Your Money, Your Wealth podcast and am hopeful to have my questions answered by the big guns. John Big Al, here's our situation. Okay. There is, Pat, what is this, 11 bullet points? There's 16. There's 16 bullet points and six questions. So I we can get tight here. Yeah, you do. Okay. We're going to rapid fire through this here. Okay. Okay. So they plan to retire from the federal government at age 62, come hell or high water. Got a TSP account, 750 in it. Have a pension, $42,000 a year. Uh, Social Security is going to be $24,000 um, at 62. Call it about 30, 36000 36, bucks at full retirement age. Husband, who is two years older than I am, is no longer working since his business uh, plummeted due to a broken ankle. Gee, well, that sucks. Um, he has $200,000 in his IRA. Okay, Are you with me now, Al? $750,000, yes. $850,000, Let's just call it a million bucks. They're going to have forty, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 of fixed income thus far just from her. His Social Security is going to be 1200 bucks a month. So now we're up to how much in fixed income? It's full retirement age? Uh, 40, we'll 50, 60, 70, 80,000 bucks, give or take? Yeah, at least. All right. So we owe $128,000 on a rental property with the interest rate of 5.65. We pay an extra $170 a month for that. Um, if 
we paid the rental off, we would clear conservatively about $1,200 a month, but the HOA fees are always increasing. Uh, we still owe $280,000 on our house with the interest rate of 3.5. Uh, we each also have Roth, Roth IRAs, $35,000 each, uh, with a total of seventy grand. We own some uh, BD stock, which was a gift from my husband's parents many moons ago. It's worth about hundred grand. We also own an acre property in Oregon, purchased for thirty thousand dollars many many moons ago. How many moons? Moons is many many moons. Well, a moon is a month, so many many is probably fifty. Is that month. how you still keep time? No. Yeah, by, by <laughs> moon time. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably about. 8,000 moons <laughs> old. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Okay, um, we have a modified endowment contract. They bought a mech. Why the hell did you do $70,000? It's worth $90,000 today. Okay. I wonder what the death benefit is. Uh, we estimated our expenditures to be about forty-two fifty a month. Okay, well, forty-five twenty a month. Forty. Well, I'm dyslexic. That's Eddie. why I'm helping. Okay. Um is that what that means when you kind of get numbers screwed up when you read out loud? I think so. I think that's <laughs> what they call it. <laughs> All right. So, <clears throat> based on my pension alone, our shortfall is thirty-seven hundred minus forty-five twenty equals eight twenty a month, which doesn't even take into account the federal and state income taxes. We are estimating another five hundred ten dollars a month for taxes given our current situation. So this gives us a minus thirteen hundred dollars a month shortfall. Pat's questions. Okay. If we cash in the MAC and sell BD stock, we can pay off the rental, so that income from the rental would make up much of our shortfall. Our total income would be 54.4K. Could we convert over $20,000 from the TSP to the Roth and still stay in that 12, 15% tax bracket? Uh, yeah. I think, well, it, you could probably do more um, because you're, you're missing the deduction there, you know, depending on what other income sources are. But if I got. Fifty-four thousand dollars of income minus twenty-five. That gets us twenty-five thousand dollars. The top of the twelve percent tax bracket is eighty grand, roughly. Right. So you could convert a lot more to stay in the top in the, of that bracket. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You bet. And your your question, I guess, about but the mech is going to be ordinary income. So she yeah. put in seventy. That's ninety. That's so twenty thousand. Twenty thousand. And the BD stock, it was it was inherited. We don't know what the tax basis, whatever whatever the basis. Well, actually, whatever the cost basis was. Or, I'm sorry. Whatever the fair market value was at the date of inheritance is your cost basis. So let's just say it was eighty thousand. Then you'd have a sixteen thousand dollar capital gain. So there's there's taxes on both of those. But I would say. I'll let you talk about the mech. The the stock, I would I would I would sell that because you, you've got a lot of risk in a single company, and that's a hundred thousand dollars. That's a lot of money, and you. Could, but it's many many moons ago, and it's worth a hundred thousand dollars. So it also I would says it was the, a gift. It doesn't say inherited. Yeah, but if does it's that a gift, make a difference? Yes, yeah, so oh, it would that, carry over okay. the, the yeah. mom and dad's would, basis. So if it was a gift of that stock, yeah. the basis is probably could, nothing. Could be low. Yeah. So you sell that hundred thousand. That's an all capital gain. It's all, yeah. I'd still do it though. But uh, yeah, you, you might want to look at staggering that a little bit. But it depends. I mean, I guess a bigger question. Question is, does she sell the stock and blow out of the mech to pay off the? Yeah, that, the, that's really her question. To, to pay off the rental. Yeah. So in the case of the mech, there's there's ordinary income of twenty thousand dollars. In the case of the stock, there's capital gains, but we don't know how much it is because it's whatever the cost basis was of, of your parents. So let's just say if it was cash that she had, would you advise? I mean, how would someone look at to see to pay off a rental? 
right? Because you've got to look at it, well, I mean, are we looking for growth? Or are we looking for income? And you have to look at the cap rate to decide this, right? So you have to look at the market value of what the property is, what the debt is, what the equity is, and what the income is you're receiving. Right. And so it's like, well, let me pay out the debt with all this extra cash flow just to create a 2% rate of return. Well, and and, um, Pat did not mention any assets outside of retirement. So if that's the case, then let's let's just say you can generate a couple hundred thousand dollars by doing this, minus the taxes, whatever they are. You probably want to set it aside for an emergency fund. You want to set it aside. Uh, I agree with the Roth conversions. You're gonna, but you're gonna need some tax money to pay for the Roth conversions. You may want to set aside for flexibility. You want to retire in a couple years, and you want to have a little fun. You want to go on some trips. Then you don't necessarily want to always pull this out of your your 401ks and things like that. And so having some flexibility there is probably a, a better idea than paying off the mortgage. Does it make sense to push out Social Security to age 70 to do more? conversions. Yeah, I think she's got enough fixed income. You push out Social Security to age 70. Listen to Al's advice. Maybe not pay off the mortgage. You have that liquidity to give you more options. Uh, Number three, are we going overboard on the amount of conversions? No. I mean, you're staying in the 12% tax bracket. You got any other comments on that? Yeah. You may even want to push it more, actually. I mean, it takes a little bit of math to figure out what bracket you're going to be in at age 70 and a half with the required minimum distributions. But given that we're in low tax brackets now because of the newer lower rates, you might want to go up even to the next bracket. Um, Number two, the second scenario is that we just leave the rental alone. I think we already answered that. Kind of uh, take our Social Security to make up the shortfall, but we still want to cash uh, in the MEC for something with better return. Uh, We want to wait until we're in a lower tax bracket to get rid of it. Yeah, that makes sense because that's ordinary income tax to you. When we sell the BD stock, do we have to pay capital? Yes. On our husband's rollover IRA, can we convert it to a Roth IRA? The answer is yes, but then again, it's still taxable, so... Um, you kind of take a look at what tax bracket that you're in. So there's a really good, I mean, she's on it, man. Yeah, a lot of good questions. Um, a lot of good questions there. Appreciate you going to the class, Pat. I'm glad you thought I was hilarious. Most people think I'm a pain in the ass. Uh, this is Zach. Um, he goes, hi, Joe and Al. I wanted to share my secret for saving for retirement. I noticed that when I religiously listen to your Money, Your Wealth podcast, I stay laser focused on my retirement goals and sock away money. When I miss a few episodes, that's when I tend to go astray and start charging stuff to credit cards. My point is, you guys offer great tips and advice, but the best benefit to listening to your show is the weekly motivation to save and invest. Keep up the great work. Zach, thank you very much for that. That, um, that means a lot to Big Al and myself here. And that's, I guess that's the goal of the show. It, it is. We, we try to have fun, but we try to educate also. Yeah, and I think if you just can listen to a couple of minutes and say, oh, shoot, right? I got to continue to think about my future self. I got to save a little bit, try to figure out a couple of different strategies. Am I doing the right things? And just get a refresher every couple of weeks. And if we can motivate you to stay on track, I guess that's all we can ask for. That's it for us today. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. Andy Last, you did a fabulous job as always. Thank you. Big Al, you were uh, phenomenal. And the, just the way you just navigated the show. 
and as, um, as well as you did. Oh, thank you, Sir uh, Joe Anderson. All right. We'll see you next week. Stick around for a quick derail from today's show at the end of this episode if you're into that kind of thing. Special thanks to today's guest, Terry Moore. Visit the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com for links to Terry's websites and his book, Building Legacy Wealth, Top San Diego Apartment Broker Shows How to Build Wealth Through Low-Risk Investment Property and Live a Life Worth Imitating. And hey, do us a favor and share the YMYW podcast with everyone you know. Tell them they can listen and subscribe for free on whatever podcast app they like. Links to all of those are in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free two-meeting financial assessment with a certified financial planner, just click the free assessment button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Quick derail for you for the week of April 16th, 2019 on Your Money, Your Wealth. I'm having the craziest dreams lately. Are you? I watched this other really bad movie late last night. <laughs> and it was the guy from, um, what's the guy that was in 300? Jordan, blah, blah, blah. No. What's his name? I just... uh, uh, come on. She'll, she'll have to look at it. I know people are screaming it right now. But anyway, I was playing golf with them, and the guy could bomb the ball like 450 yards. Gerard Butler? Yes, Gerard Butler. You were thinking Cl- Depardieu? No, that's what Gerard you said. Butler. The mic got... <laughs> it's the mic's fault. Yes. <clears throat> there you have it. We'll see you next week, friends.